The Idea of Saint Benedict Excerpts from Benedictine Monasticism, Studies in Benedictine Life and the Rule, written by Abbot Cuthbert Butler, 1919. Saint Benedict's Idea How far have Benedictine history and work in the world, and it may be said, Benedictine ideas gone beyond anything that could have been in St. Benedict's mind. How little he thought that his monks were to be apostles, missionaries, civilizers, schoolmasters, editors of the fathers. How surprised would he have been at the figure of a medieval, mitred abbot, a feudal baron, fulfilling the functions of a great landlord and of a statesman. How bewildering to him would have been the gorgeous church functions and the stately ceremonial that have become one of the most cherished traditions among his sons. How meaningless would the work that has come to be regarded as characteristically Benedictine have seemed in his eyes, and how strange would the adjective learned, associated as a sort of Constans Epheton, with his name have sounded in his ears, who, to use St. Gregory's quaint phrase, fled from the Roman schools, siniter nescius et sapienter indoctus. What a development! What a transformation is here! Yet, for all that, it is by the common consent recognized that, on the whole, and in its great currents, Benedictine history has been true to the idea of the founder, a legitimate development, not a perversion. In this passage is applied to Benedictine monasticism the principle accepted in regard to all institutions, social, political, religious, that live on and work during long periods of time, that they need change and develop and grow, and may be almost out of recognition. It is a sign of life, for to live is to grow and to change, and such changes, however seemingly great, which are but as the vital responses of a living organism to the conditions and needs of its successive environments, are justified as legitimate and true developments of the original idea. Hence to isolate St. Benedict's ideas, or St. Francis's ideas, and make it the sole measure of Benedictine or Franciscan history, ruling out whatever was not explicitly present to the Founder's consciousness, would be unhistorical, uncritical, and untrue. And so, if we now endeavor to bring out into the clear St. Benedict's own idea, his reconstruction of monasticism as it shaped itself in his mind, it is not at all with the object of showing that whatever is outside his concept is thereby false to his idea, or that the most literal reproduction of the physical conditions of life in his monastery would be the most faithful presentation of his mind and spirit throughout all ages. Quite otherwise. But, on the other hand, it is true that fidelity to the original type and continuity of principles are the chief tests of the truth of historical developments. And so, an examination and appreciation of St. Benedict's idea in its simplicity, and, as it was in his own mind, is the necessary prelude to any study of Benedictine monasticism. The norm by which must be judged all manifestations of Benedictine life and activities at all times. We have, therefore, at the outset, to try to arrive at a correct conception of what St. Benedict's idea was. It is fortunate that he tells us himself quite definitively what he intends to do. We are going to establish a school of God's service, in which we hope we shall establish nothing harsh, 
nothing burdensome. Taken from the prologue of St. Benedict's Rule. St. Benedict, we have seen, when he first made up his mind to be a monk, acting according to the Egyptian monastic ideals current in Western Europe, retired to a desert spot and dwelt in a cave, enduring hunger and thirst, heat and cold, and all the severity of the weather. But when he came to write his rule and to legislate for the life of his own monastery of Monte Cassino and others that might adopt his rule, his ideas had undergone a change, embodied in those words in which he says that in the school of divine service he was founding, he intended to establish nothing harsh or burdensome. These words have very commonly been interpreted as a pious exaggeration or device to encourage his disciples and as not really meaning what they say, but it is easy to show that they do mean exactly what they say. They are borne out of by the other passages of the rule. The 49th chapter opens, Though we read that a monk's life should at all times have the Lenten observance, yet, as few have this courage, we urge them in these days of Lent to wash away the negligences of other times. Similarly, in the 40th chapter, Though we read that wine is not for monks at all, yet, as in our days, monks cannot be persuaded of this, at any rate, let us agree to use it sparingly. And there are others cases in which what may be called the appeal to a monastic tradition in regard to austerity of life is made, only to be set aside that mitigations may be deliberately adopted. This point will be worked out in some detail in the next chapter. Here it will suffice to quote St. Benedict's works when summing up in the last chapter of the rule. We have written this rule in order that by observing it in monasteries we may show we have in some measure, at any rate, integrity of morals and a beginning of the monastic life. And in concluding he calls his rule a very little rule for beginners. In this St. Benedict is not using the language of a feigned humility, but is speaking the very truth as appears from a comparison of his rule with the records of the monasticism of Egypt or of Western Europe in his day. However austere may seem in the 20th century a life according to the letter of St. Benedict's rule, in his own day it can have appeared but as an easy form of monastic life, when compared either with the existing monastic rules and accepted traditions on the one hand, or with the ordinary discipline of the church for the faithful as in the matter of fasting and penitential code on the other. Indeed, Dom Morin describes that in these matters St. Benedict's regimen was no more than was often imposed on Christian living in the world. Thus, in his reconstruction of the monastic life of St. Benedict's idea was to establish a manner of life, self-denying, of course, and hard, but not a life of great austerity. Benedictine life is not, and is not intended to be, what is called a penitential life. And anyone who feels called to such a life should go to some other order and not become a Benedictine, for a life such as this is not in accordance with St. Benedict's idea. Another of St. Benedict's fundamental ideas appears in the first chapter of the rule. He lays it down that he writes his rule for Cenobites, i.e. monks living in community, and for Cenobites only. After speaking of other kinds of monks, both good and bad, he says in conclusion, let us proceed to legislate for the strongest and best kind, the Cenobites. He has just given a definition of Cenobites, but as this chapter is in large measure based on the passages of St. Jerome and Cassian, 
it will be helpful to know precisely their idea of Cenobites, which St. Benedict had before his eyes when framing his own definition. St. Jerome only says that Cenobites may be called men living in common, or dwelling in common. Cassian's description is, who live together in a congregation and are governed by the judgment of a single elder. St. Benedict explains Cenobites as monasterial serving as Christ's soldiers under a rule or abbot. He uses the word monasterial, not monastic, as the latter would be applicable to hermits as well as Cenobites. Monasterial receives its interpretation in various places in the rule, dwelling in Cenoba, preserving in the monastery till death, and as a matter of fact, the whole tenor of the rule contemplates nothing else than an organized community living a fully common life under the rule, common prayer, common work, common meals, common dormitory, a life lived wholly with the precincts of the monastery, the occasions of going forth being reduced to a minimum and regarded as definitely undesirable and dangerous. St. Benedict speaks, indeed, with admiration of the hermetical life, which then formed an integral part of European monasticism, and was commonly regarded not only as the most perfect realization of the monastic life, but as the goal to be aimed at and practiced by those who had the necessary courage and strength and virtue. But he expressly declares that he legislates for Cenobites alone. Consequently, when we find instances of Eastern or Western monks, especially Irish, going forth from their monasteries to lead the hermetical life, or when we see them undertaking pilgrimages or wanderings as a practice of asceticism, as is common now amongst Buddhist aesthetics, such things have great interest for the general history of monasticism, but they have no interest for Benedictine history and afford no help for the interpretation of St. Benedict's idea, which was plainly and only cenobotic. There are other kinds of monks, good and bad, but St. Benedict's idea of his own monks was that they were to be Cenobites, spending their lives in the monastery under the conditions of community life. But St. Benedict introduced a modification into the idea of Cenobotical life. Up to his time, monks, though looked upon as bound, whether by vows or without them, irrevocably to the practice of the monastic life, so that to abandon it was considered an apostasy, still were not tied to a particular monastery or community, but were allowed with little difficulty to pass from one house to another. St. Benedict's most special and tangible contribution to the development of monasticism was the introduction of the vow of stability. It will be necessary later on to inquire with some care what was his own full idea of stability. Here it will be enough to say, in general, that by it he put a stop to such liberty of passage from monastery to monastery, and incorporated the monk by his profession in the community of his own monastery. St. Benedict thus bound the monks of a monastery together into a permanent family, united by bonds that lasted for life. This idea that the monks of each Benedictine monastery form a permanent community, distinct from that of every other Benedictine monastery, is among the most characteristic features of Benedictine monasticism, a chief discriminant between it and the later orders. This idea of the monastic family, at any rate, in its concrete realization, was St. Benedict's. The great Coptic monasteries of Pacomus and Shunit were far too big to be families. They were rather great agricultural colonies divided into houses and organized on the basis of the different trades carried on in them. Concerning the inner life of St. Basil's monasteries, we have not sufficient information. But neither St. Martin of Tours, where the 
80 monks abode in separate caves, nor the huge Celtic monasteries with their hundreds of monks can be regarded as embodying the family type so characteristic of Benedictine monasticism, nor could they without the idea enshrined in the Benedictine vow of stability. In view of current notions concerning religious orders, it is necessary here at the outset to bring out a negative side of St. Benedict's idea and emphasize the fact that he had no thought of instituting an order. There was no such thing in his time as monastic or other orders. St. Benedict had no intention that the monastery wherein his rule was followed should form a group apart, nor did they for many centuries, but each Benedictine monastery was a separate entity, autonomous and self-contained, having no organic bonds with other monasteries. Among the houses of the black monks, pure and simple, that is, outside the systems of Cluny and Citeaux, each abbey continued to stand in its primitive isolation, until the formation of national chapters at the beginning of the 13th century. Moreover, associated with the modern concept of a religious order is the idea of some special work to be done, some need of the church to be met, and a man joins the order hoping thereby to be enabled to better to carry out this work which he feels called. But with the Benedictines, it was not so. There was no special form of work which their organization was designed to undertake. A man became a monk precisely because he felt to be a monk, and for no other purpose or object whatever, nor as a preparation for anything else except heaven. The monk's object is to sanctify his soul and serve God by leading a life in community in accordance with the gospel counsels. Work of various kinds will be given unto him to do, but these are secondary, and no one of them is part of his essential vocation as a monk. What has been said may be illustrated and enforced from the earlier pages of Cardinal Gasquet's Sketch of a Monastic History. The monastic life is nothing more than the Christian life of the gospel councils conceived in its full simplicity and perfection. It has no determinate object in view beyond this. It has no special system or methods. The broad law of Christian liberty is its only guide. It is neither strict nor lax. It aims neither at too high things nor is it content with any low standard of conduct. But it adapts itself to the workings of grace and in each individual soul gains its end when it has brought the individual soul to the highest perfection of which its natural and supernatural gifts render it capable. Again, it is merely a systemized form of life according to the gospel's counsels, existing for its own sake as a full expression of the church's true and perfect life. Returning to St. Benedict's definition of his monastery as a school of the service of God, we ask what was the kind of service that he established? It may be said to be contained in the three services, self-discipline, prayer, work. Of these three services, self-discipline is, of course, the subjective basis and condition of the others, that which gives its meaning to the whole life. It will be enlarged upon in two succeeding chapters. Of the external services, St. Benedict placed prayer, in particular common prayer, the celebration in choir of the canonical office, First, in order of thought and importance, he calls it the duty, or the task of our service. It has so filled his mind that it is the one subject on which he legislates in minute detail, devoting eleven chapters to that ordering of the psalmody and office which after fourteen centuries is still used by his sons. The work of God 
is his name for it. And he says that nothing is to be set before the work of God. That by work of God, St. Benedict means precisely the public recital of the office and nothing else is made clear by an examination of the places where the terms occurs in the rule. The prominence of the Opus Dei, work of God, in St. Benedict's mind has been erected into a principle that the public celebration of the office is the purpose of his institute and that Benedictines exist for the sake of the choir, propter corum fundasti. I have heard a Benedictine abbot who expressed this idea so crudely as to say to his monks, You have the choir and the refractory. What more do you need? But the view finds expression also in Abbot Dolette's excellent commentary on the rule, which I read in general with great agreement. Quote, The proper and distinctive work of the Benedictine, his portion, his mission, is the liturgy. He makes his profession in order to be one in the church, the Society of Divine Praise, who glorifies God according to the forms instituted by herself. End quote. This means that the essence of a Benedictine vocation is the celebration of the liturgy. If that be the case, it is due to St. Benedict himself and must be counted among the innovations he made in the monastic life, for it was not part of the inheritance he received from the earlier monasticism. The public celebration of the canonical office always held a prominent place in synoptical life of whatever kind, but the idea that it was the essence of the life does not emerge from the records of the Egyptian monks, nor from the writings of St. Basil or Cassian. So far as the earlier monasticism goes, a much stronger case could be made out for Father Augustine Baker's contention that private spiritual prayer is the scope of the monastic state. The Nikil Opera Dei Paraponator, when taken in its context and its relations to the passage in the rule of Marcarius, on which it is based, does not afford ground for thinking St. Benedict narrowed the conception of the monastic life in this way. It is to be supposed that his idea was, I want to secure the celebration of the divine office, and therefore I will establish a monastery. This is no doubt has been true of many a founder of individual monasteries, collegiate chapters, and charities in the Middle Ages, but can hardly be true of St. Benedict. Was not his idea rather, I want to establish a monastery to be a school of God's service, wherein the primary community service shall be the public celebration of the divine office? Consequently, I agree with Dom Morin in holding that the propter corum fundasti is an exaggeration. I believe the idea arose at a later date in the ninth or 10th century, at a time when manual labor had dropped out of the life of the monasteries and there was a prodigious increase in the church services, masses, offices, additional devotions, so that the monks spent most of their time in church, as will be explained in a later chapter. It was then, too, that the liturgical pomp and circumstance and elaboration of ritual underwent a great development, whereas St. Benedict's liturgy was doubtless of a severe simplicity that would nowadays appear Puritan. But whatever view be held on this point of Benedictine theory, all will accept that Cardinal Gasquet has written on the actual place the office holds in Benedictine life. The central figure of the society of the monastery was its divine king. The monastery was a palace, a court, and the divine office was the daily service and formal homage rendered to the divine majesty. This, the Opus Dei, was the crown of the whole structure of the monastic edifice. 
It was preeminently the work of the monk which was to take precedence over every other employment, and to which monastic tradition has ever given a marked solemnity. Day by day, and almost hour by hour, the monk, purified by his vows, enclosed from the world, seeks to renew the wonderful familiarity with his God and Father, which our first parents forfeited, but which, through our second Adam, is restored in the Christian Church. In a word, the divine office is the soul of the monastic life. The declarations of the English congregation say that our primary duty is to carry out on earth what the angels do in heaven, and this is probably no exception will be taken. Of the service of work, it will here suffice to say that the work fell under the categories of manual labor and reading, between which were apportioned the hours of the day not spent in the church. The labor was predominantly work in the fields and garden, or the household and kitchen, and elsewhere, necessary for the life of a large community. The reading, it may be safely said, was confined to the scriptures and the fathers, and was devotional rather than intellectual in character and scope. Lexio Divinae is St. Benedict's way of describing it. A simple life it was, made up of a round of simple duties, and the monks were quite simple men, though no doubt some were of the same station in life as St. Benedict himself. The great majority of them were recruited from the Italian peasantry or from some semi-barbarous Gothic invaders. They were not priests, they were not clerics, there were only two or three priests, perhaps only one, in the community, just sufficient to celebrate the Sunday Mass and administer the sacraments. The general conditions of life were probably not rougher or harder than would have been the lot of most of them had they remained in the world. The difference lay in the element of religion brought into every detail of their lives, and so they lived together their common life, serving God by the daily round of duties in the choir, in farm and garden, in kitchen and bakehouse and worship, chanting, praying, working, reading, meditating, their life work and their life interests being concentrated as far as possible within the precincts of the monastery or its immediate vicinity. Such were the primitive Benedictines, St. Benedict's own monks. Such was the mustard seed which has grown into the great and varied and complex tree that will be revealed to us when we come to study St. Benedict's Institute as it has developed itself in history. Such was St. Benedict's own idea of the monasticism which in the maturity of his religious experience and spiritual wisdom he established at Monte Cassino and legislated for in his rule. And this was the community, and these the men, destined by God to play so great a part in repairing the ruin, religious, social, material, in which Europe was lying, and in converting, Christianizing, and educating the new nations that were to make the new great Christian commonwealth. From what has been said, the pertinent observation follows, that to set up, as has been done, St. Benedict in his cave at Subiaco, as the embodiment of the truest Benedictine ideal, and the pattern which it would be well for Benedictines, had they the courage and firmness of mind to try to imitate it, is unhistorical and untrue. No less untrue it would be to set up St. Ignatius at Marneressa, and the best embodiment of the spirit and life of the society he founded. 
Such episodes in the lives of these and other great founders were only periods of formation and preparation for their work of religious creation. And when they came forth from their retirement, they did not shape their institutes on the lines they had themselves at first adopted, but in conformity with the lessons they had learned, therein in many things they turned their back upon their early experiences." so that they were fully formed and matured idea is to be seen in their rules and in their institutes in the final form in which they left them. It is impossible to include under any single formula St. Benedict's idea or the essence of Benedictinism, just as impossible as it is to include under any single formula the essence of Christianity. All that can be done is to state various aspects which taken together may afford an adequate conception. The following description gathers up the points that have been made brought out in this chapter. St. Benedict's idea was to form a community of monks bound to live together until death, under rule, in common life, in the monastery of their profession, as a religious family, leading a life not of marked austerity, but devoted to the service of God. The holy service they have professed, he calls it. The service consisting in the community act of the celebration of the divine office and in the discipline of a life ordered on daily manual work and religious reading, according to the rule and under obedience to the abbot. It will be of interest in the conclusion to confront this account of original Benedictine life with Newman's impressions of it given in his essay, The Mission of St. Benedict. Benedictines have reason to be grateful that one of Newman's knowledge and insight and historical genius should have given them this objective study of their life and spirit. The monks of those days, he writes, had a unity of object, of state and occupation. Their object was rest and peace. Their state was retirement. Their occupation was some work that was simple as opposed to intellectual, prayer, fasting, meditation, study, transcription, manual labor, and other unexciting, soothing employments. The monastic institute, says the biographer of St. Maurus, demands summa quis, the most perfect quietness, and where was quietness to be found, if not in reverting to the original condition of man, as far as the changed circumstances of our race admitted, and having no wants, of which the supply was not close at hand, in the nil admari, and having neither hope nor fear of anything below, and daily prayer, daily bread, and daily work, one day being just like another, except that it was one step nearer than the day before, to it, to that great day which would swallow up all days, the day of everlasting rest. Benedictine Aestheticism Five chapters will now be devoted to the inner life, or the personal dealings of the individual soul with God, and will study St. Benedict's mind, as it may be read in the rule and in the Benedictine tradition, or the range of subjects embraced under the ideas of self-discipline and prayer. Self-discipline has already been put in the first place as the most fundamental among the services of that school of God's service that St. Benedict declared his monasticism to be, and it will be taken in this and the following chapter under the titles of Aestheticism and Spiritual Life. Rightly understood, these are indeed but different names for the same thing. Still, it will be convenient to treat them separately, and first, Benedictine aestheticism. Elsewhere I have said, monasticism is a system of living which owes its origins to those tendencies of the human soul which are summed up in the terms 
aestheticism, and mysticism. Mysticism may broadly be described as the effort to give effect to the craving for a union of the soul with the deity already in his life, and asceticism as the effort to give effect to that hankering after an ever-progressive purification of the soul and an atoning for sin by renunciation and self-denial in things lawful. These two tendencies may well be said to be general instincts of humanity, because, though not always called into activity, they are always liable to be evoked, and in all ages and among all races they frequently have asserted themselves. Indeed, the history of religion shows that they are among the most deep-rooted and widespread instincts of the human soul, and monasticism is the attempt to develop and regulate their exercise. It is necessary briefly to set forth the real nature of asceticism and its place in Christian life, because without a proper notion of the theory of aestheticism, it would not be possible to understand Benedictine monasticism or any monasticism whatsoever. Aestheticism denotes strictly ethical training, self-discipline in the widest sense of the term. So understood, asceticism must be an ingredient in every seriously lived Christian life and is in any well-ordered moral life, but the name is hardly used of the ordinary endeavors of a good life. It connotes some kind of special kind of endeavor, some sort of effort at self-denial and spiritual achievement beyond what is required in order to work out our salvation. It is a subject on which much has been written of late, and thoughtful non-Catholic opinion has traveled far from the crude old Protestant view that asceticism is unchristian and unnatural. To mention only English works, the subject is well dealt with in the chapters 1 and 3, of Hannes' Spirit and Origin of Christian Monasticism, and more briefly in the first chapter of Lothar Clark's St. Basil, and a hundred columns are devoted to it in Hastings' Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics, where it is to be treated in full in a dozen sections by as many writers. It will be helpful to give various definitions or descriptions of aestheticism from these writers, especially as they regard it from more or less critical standpoints. In the section Christian Asceticism of Hastings Encyclopedia by well-known Protestant scholar Dr. Otto Zuckler, author of an exhaustive monograph, Asques en Monctum, and following account is given. The word, when used in the sphere of religion and ethics, denotes self-preparation for a virtuous course of conduct, the zealous practice of acts of devotion and morality, this practice of virtue in the narrower and stricter sense or what may be called moral gymnastic, may consist in exercises of an inward kind, prayer offered in the heart, examination of conscience and the like, or in acts of self-discipline, passing over into the outward life, self-mortifications by fastings, voluntary poverty, sexual continence, etc. Mr. Lothar Clark writes, Asceticism is severe self-discipline undertaken for religious ends, an exercise with reference both to the natural desires of the body and distractions of the outer world. Mortification is a term closely akin to aestheticism, and perhaps rather signifies the acts whereby the idea of aestheticism is carried out in practice. The word goes back to St. Paul. The idea in aesthetical language is the killing of the self in all of its evil manifestations, self-love, self-conceit, self-will, self-seeking, and every form of selfishness. Like aestheticism, it is eternal or external, the external or bodily mortification being of value only insofar as it promotes the internal or spiritual. 
the well-known English Benedictine aesthetic and mystic author Father Augustine Baker, who will many times be referred to in the sequel, divides the whole range of the spiritual life into the two branches, mortification and prayer, these being only more concrete names for the abstract terms asceticism and mysticism as used above. Father Baker's treatment of mortification is in large measure a treatise on the chief religious virtues, including chapters on patience, humility, and the love of God. The latter would not in ordinary language be considered a mortification, but Father Baker's meaning is that love of God is the mortification of self-love. His conception of mortification is that by it, we exercise all duties and practice all virtues with regard to ourselves. Thus, in general, mortification includes the exercise of all virtues. For in every act of virtue we mortify some inordinate passion and inclination of nature, so that to attain to perfect mortification is to be possessed of all virtues. Further, he says that prayer is in itself the most excellent and effectual mortification, for in it and by it the most secret risings of inordinate passions are contradicted. Such teaching carries the idea of interior or spiritual mortification to its extreme limit. It is under the... uh, It is under the leading idea of renunciation that Mr. Hannay considers asceticism, and also Mr. Workman, for whom monasticism is but a chapter in the long story of renunciation in the Christian church, and in this they have Cassian with them, whose favorite name for monks is, is renunciant. Hannay writes, Asceticism is the refusal to make any compromise with the ways of the world, even which ways which are without taint of actual sins, and such asceticisms as poverty, living in community, virginity, and fasting are each of them a great renunciation of the world and its ways. And so the three great renunciations consecrated in the three vows of poverty, obedience, and chastity have at all times been looked on as classic asceticisms. The idea of renunciation of the world was the most general conception of the monastic life, withdrawal being the earliest technical term for becoming a monk a renouncing of the businesses and ambitions and pleasures of life, even the lawful ones. It implied solitude and silence, either absolute, as with hermits, or mitigated, as with Cenobites, and it involved in varying degrees a number of lesser renunciations, as of intoxicants, or creature comforts, or intellectual pursuits, largely at the choice of the individual. The foregoing writers, even so uncompromisingly a Protestant as Dr. Zuckler, recognize that renunciation and asceticism so understood are found in the New Testament. They have a place in our Lord's life, a life of virginity, with one recorded severe fast and poverty, at all times real and sometimes extreme, which those who accept the Christian tradition must believe to have been voluntarily chosen. The Sermon on the Mount is highly aesthetical, and so are many phrases of St. Paul's teaching. Asceticism soon found expression in the early church, and was recognized in well-established feature in Christian life before the monastic movement of the 4th century. All this is in accord with the trend of recent thought. But for all that, Canon Hannay is probably right in saying that a bedrock difference between Protestantism and Catholicism still lies precisely in this matter of asceticism and in the outlook on life. For Protestantism, the ideal of the highest Christian life is a well-ordered and religious use of the good things of life, 
It has little or no sympathy with renunciations or even purely spiritual asceticism, except insofar as they are necessary to secure this object. And for most of Father Baker's interior mortifications, it would have scant approval. Protestantism denies the theories of councils of perfections as distinguished from precepts of the Christian code. And on the validity of this distinction, as Canon Hannay says, the theoretical justification of monasticism rests. As the matter cannot be discussed in this place, I am content to refer to his striking appendix of Councils and Precepts, wherein he deals with it in view of the most modern Protestant position, that of Roth, which leads, he declares, to conclusions against the heart and conscience alike, cry out. This must suffice on the general question of aestheticism. From what has been said, it appears that aestheticism falls under the three branches. 1. There is purely internal self-discipline in spiritual exercising, carried out in mind and heart and soul, without becoming in any way external. 2. There are the three great renunciations, especially those of the three evangelical councils, poverty, obedience, chastity, which have at all times been recognized as the principal external aestheticisms. 3. There are the various forms of corporal austerities or bodily mortifications. The first will be dealt with in the next chapter on the spiritual life. In regard to the second, it is enough to say that the renunciations of the three councils, which are of the essence of the monastic state in all its forms, were adopted by St. Benedict without compromise. Obedience is the explicit object of one of the Benedictine vows, and if poverty and chastity are not, personal poverty and renunciation of private ownership is explicitly exacted and, in very complete fashion, by the rule. As for chastity, it is taken for granted as a condition of the life. To love chastity is one of St. Benedict's instruments of good works, and it cannot be doubted that the expressions, the monk has no power over his own body, is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, and means that one professed monk, the monk is bound to the observance of chastity. It is the third branch of asceticism, that of corporal austerity, that is to be dealt with here, and it is taken first because there is a common tendency to identify aestheticism wrongly with this one form, and understand by the term self-inflicted or at least deliberately chosen and sought bodily austerities and discomforts. In deference to this current acceptation of the word, it is well to begin the study of Benedictine aestheticism by examining St. Benedict's mind in regard to this kind of mortifications. And in the first place, it has to be noted that of what may be called the artificial self-inflicted penances, the hair shirts, chainlets, spikes, and pricks, and the scourgings that play so large a part in the history of aestheticism and have been so conspicuous in later medieval and modern devotional life. There is no trace whatsoever in St. Benedict's rule, or in his life as told by St. Gregory. It is true that if exhortations and warnings failed, Corporal chastisements, flogging, was, was resorted to in the case of refractory monks, but it was a punishment, not a mortification, and it was not self-inflicted. The practice of self-flagellations, called taking the discipline, did not come into vogue, at any rate in the West, until long after St. Benedict's time, its introduction being associated with the name of St. Peter Damien in the 11th century. Oriental monks, especially in Syria, commonly practiced artificial penances, often outlandish in character, 
and European monks in Gaul were imitating them, as we learn from Gregory of Tours, binding heavy weights on their backs and carrying chains. All this is quite foreign to St. Benedict's spirit, for St. Gregory tells us that when a neighboring hermit chained himself to a rock, as Simon Stylitz had done before sending his pillar, St. Benedict rebuked him, saying, If thou be God's servant, let the chain of Christ, not in any iron chain, hold thee. Now, we come to the other kind of bodily austerities, those that may be called natural and that form the staple of the mortifications of the great Egyptian hermits, the privations of food and drink, of sleep and clothing, exposure to heat and cold, labors undertaken in order to wear down the body. Before St. Benedict, the practice of these bodily austerities had been looked on as a chief means of attaining the spiritual end of the monastic life. But he prescribed for his monks sufficient food, ample sleep, proper clothing. A number of antitheses between his regulations and those of the previously fashionable Egypt monasticism will bring into clear light the changes he made and the spirit underlying them. In the matter of food, he allows to each daily a pound of bread, and orders two dishes of cooked food, and a third of fruit or young vegetables, so that he who cannot eat of one may make his meal of the other. As Abbot Dalat says, this menu would have appeared to the fathers of the desert as intended for monks utterly relaxed. He also allows a measure, a half a pint at least, very likely more, of wine daily, the advice and practice of the Egyptian monks was to reduce the quantity of food and drink almost to a minimum. St. Benedict prescribes only frugality and the avoidance of gluttony. In Egypt, there was a constant striving to reduce the amount of sleep to the narrowest possible limit, and such battling the sleep and drowsiness was one of their favorite aestheticism. St. Benedict allows his monks during the greater part of the year more than eight hours of unbroken sleep each night, and in the summer, five or six hours by night, and a siesta by day. See chapter 12 of the Rule of St. Benedict. In Egypt, the monk slept on the bare ground with stones for pillows, or at best on papyrus mats. And whereas Abbot John in Cassian deplores the degeneracy of the times that a blanket may be found in a hermit's cell, a thing I cannot mention without shame, as he says, St. Benedict allows not only a blanket, but mattress, coverlet, and a pillow as well. Abbot Pombo of Nitria laid it down that a monk's clothes should be such that if they were left out on the road, no one would think of taking them. St. Benedict directs that the monks are to get new clothes while the old ones are still fit to be given to the poor. The abbot is to see that the monks' clothes fit them. They are to have warmer clothes in the winter, lighter in summer, and clothes are to be changed for the night and are to be washed. He considers a monk's outfit to consist of two cowls or cloaks, two tunics, shoes and socks, perhaps gaiters, griddle, knife, pen, needle, handkerchief, and writing tablet. A great contrast with the poverty and nakedness practiced in Egypt. Certain features of the rule appear austere to us in the 20th century. For instance, perpetual abstinence from flesh meat, except in case of sickness, is considered a great austerity today. But to the agricultural laborers of Italy in St. Benedict's time, it would have not seemed so. Nor would the privation of baths have seemed a hardship to Italian peasants of the 6th century. St. Benedict made his monks rise very early, at about 2 a.m., during the greater part of the year, and still earlier in the summer, 
but they had gone to bed before dark and had a long prolonged period of unbroken sleep. The idea often held, even by Benedictines, that the midnight office of the Carthusians, breaking the night's rest into two portions, is what St. Benedict intended, is not in accordance with fact. The only feature of the life that probably was severe, even to St. Benedict's monk, was the single meal a day. For about half the year, from Easter till mid-September, there were two meals, at midday and in the evening. This would not be considered a severe regimen, even by Italians of the upper classes in our own day. It is the actual practice at Monte Cassino, but from mid-September till Lent, there was but one meal, at about 2.30 p.m. Here will be appropriate to quote from a writer who knew Italians and their ways so well as the late Marion Crawford. Breakfast, as we understand it, is the unknown meal in Italy even now. Most people drink a cup of black coffee standing, many eat a morsel of bread or biscuit with it, and get out of doors as soon as they can. But the greediness of an Anglo-Saxon breakfast disgusts all Latins alike, and two set meals daily are thought to be enough for anyone, as indeed they are. The hard-working Italian hill peasant will sometimes toast himself a piece of cornbread before going to work and eat it with a few drops of olive oil. And in absence of tea or coffee, the people of the Middle Ages often drank a mouthful of wine on rising to move the blood, as they said, but that was all. The Lenten regimen, indeed, with its rising at two and working in the fields from nine till four without breaking the fast until the single meal in the late afternoon must have been a severe physical strain on St. Benedict's monks. But in those days, Lent was intended to be a severe physical strain on all Christians, and St. Benedict's single meal shortly before sunset was still the common discipline of the church for all her children. St. Benedict considered that the manner of life he established in his monastery would be enough, on the physical side, to enable his monks to arrive at the perfection of the monastic life, and so far from encouraging them to try to go beyond the rule by practicing austerities on their own account, he discouraged private venture into asceticism, and made it a point of virtue that the monks should do nothing except the common rule of the monastery and the example of superiors' exhorts and that in all things all should follow the rule as mistress. The only exception St. Benedict tolerated was water drinking. In Lent he encourages each to add something voluntarily to the ordinary duties of our service of God in the way of some aesthetical exercise beyond the rule, but even then it was to be indicated to the abbot and undertaken only with his approval and blessing. It may be thought that the point is being unduly labored, but it is vital for any true understanding of St. Benedict, and it has very commonly been misunderstood, even by Benedictines. Not a few Benedictine reforms, especially in the 16th and 17th century, but also in more recent times, have been in great measure based on the idea of restoring the austerity deliberately discarded by St. Benedict. Traces of this misconception of St. Benedict's spirit exist at the present day. On November 13th, Benedictine celebrated a feast sometimes called All Monks, but in the official calendar, All Benedictine Saints. In the hymn occur the following lines, Vobis olus cabria furere vel lugiminae, potumque lympha prebuit, humnusque dura lectilum, vesitistis inter aspides, savusque cum draconibus. For a general feast of all monks, no exception could be taken to the hymn, for Benedictines would only find their place in the great crowd of monks of all kind, fathers of the desert, hermits, 
Syriac and Celtic monks, and the rest, and it would seem this was the hymn writer's intention. Adverte salitudinis clarusque mites incolae. But for a specifically Benedictine feast, the hymn is singularly ill-chosen, being pitched in a wrong key. For vegetable diet, water drinking, sleeping on the bare ground, living with snakes and dragons, not one of those things, though true of St. Benedict himself in the Sacro Specco, is any part of Benedictine life, and they are all in direct contradiction to the provisions of the rule. Another instance may be produced from our own day, the crypt at Monte Cassino has recently been gorgeously and beautifully decorated by Benedictine monks of the Buren Congregation and was solemnly reopened in 1913. In the carvings and reliefs, St. Benedict and his monks are in bare feet, or in some cases with light sandals, like the Discalce Carmelites. It will not be questioned that the human foot is a more beautiful object and lends itself more easily to artistic treatment than a boot. But St. Benedict says quite definitely, footgear, whatever be the precise meaning of padules in caligae, probably the 6th century equivalent of socks and shoes. It is regrettable that at Monte Cassino, of all places, so grotesque a notion, and one so alien from St. Benedict's mind, as barefooted Benedictines, should even seem to be countenanced. For like reasons, the familiar presentation of St. Benedict in the early Umbrian school finger on lip and rod in hand, as though silence and chastisement were the keynotes of the rule, though appropriate enough for St. Columban, is, as of symbolizing St. Benedict's spirit, a parody, doubtfully regrettable, in such masters as Guido and Perguino, in other cases so sympathetically appreciative of the spirit of the saints. They probably reflected a wave of reforming rigorism in the Benedictine houses around them. To sum up the matter of Benedictine aestheticism so far as it concerns the practice of bodily austerities, St. Benedict found monasticism in Italy and in Gaul languishing, sinking under the weight of ideals and practices inherited from the East but unsuited to Western conditions. To meet the case, he did not gather up what remained still an exercise of the primitive austerities and attempt a restoration of the old aesthetic life, but struck out a new line such as seemed to him more fitting for the times and circumstances. And whereas a strong individualism was the keynote of Egyptian monasticism in its all its phases, in Western Europe, hardly less than in Egypt, St. Benedict was a collectivist in the spiritual order. In place of rivalry and aesthetical achievement, he established a common mode of life. In place of rivalry and aesthetical achievement, he established a common mode of life made up of a round of objective duties, none too onerous, common prayer, work, and reading, and the sanctification of the monk was to be found in living the life of the community. This twofold break with the past, in the elimination of austerity and in the sinking of the individual community, made St. Benedict's rule less a development than a revolution in monasticism. It may almost be called a new creation, and it was destined to prove, as the subsequent history shows, peculiarly, adapted to the new races that were repeopling Western Europe. St. Benedict's Teaching on the Spiritual Life If St. Benedict thought, as the event showed, rightly thought, that he could eliminate from the monastic life the element of corporal austerity as it had been understood and practiced before his time, it goes without saying that he by no means supposed asceticism could be dispensed with. 
Asceticism, as we have seen, means training in the spiritual life, both in the negative aspect of purging from soul and character all that is sinful, imperfect, selfish, and in the positive aspect of cultivating, building up all that is good and holy. It thus embraces mortification and the practice of the virtues, and it is, in effect, that aiming at and tending to perfection that is one of the recognized obligation of the religious life in every form. It is the department of the spiritual life which has to do with ourselves and our own souls, and the process of purification that will make them such as may draw near to God. Though it is impossible to extract from the rule of St. Benedict's teaching on the spiritual life, he nowhere gives any scientific or ordered exposition of a general theory of its course, but such a theory is to be found in Cassian, and Cassian we know was St. Benedict's spiritual book of predilection. In two places in the rule he tells his monks to read Cassian, and the Index Scriptorum to my edition of the rule shows that the references to Cassian are more numerous and also more considerable than to any other author. And if the references be examined, it will appear that St. Benedict was familiar with Cassian's writings and was saturated with their thought and language in a greater measure than with any other, save only the Holy Scriptures. So in giving Cassian's theory of the spiritual life, we may be sure we are giving the ideas practically accepted by St. Benedict. It is the 14th conference, that of Abbot Nesteros, on spiritual knowledge that we find a formal exposition of the course of the spiritual life. Bishop Gibson's translation in the Nicene and Post-Nicene Library is followed, the text being compressed. Quote, spiritual knowledge is twofold. First, practical, which is brought about by an improvement of morals and purification from faults, Secondly, which consists in the contemplation of things divine and the knowledge of the most sacred thoughts. Whoever would arrive at this theoretical contemplative knowledge must first pursue practical knowledge with all his might and main. For this practical knowledge can be acquired without the contemplative, but the contemplative cannot possibly be gained without the practical. In vain does one strive for the vision of God who does not shun the stains of sin." This practical perfection depends on a double system, for its first method is to know the nature of all faults and the manner of their cure, its second to discover the order of the virtues, and form our mind by their perfection. For in what way will one, who has neither succeeded in understanding the nature of his own faults, nor tried to eradicate them, be able to gain an understanding of virtues, which is the second stage of practical training? or the mysteries of spiritual and heavenly things, which exists in the higher stage of contemplative knowledge. The practical life is distributed among many different professions and interests, for some make it their whole purpose to aim at the secrecy of the anchorite and to be joined to God by the silence of solitude. Some have given all their efforts and interests to the system of the cenobotic life and the care of the brethren. Some are pleased with the kindly service of the guesthouse and hospitality, as Macarius presided over the guesthouse in Alexandria, in such a way as to be considered inferior to none of those who aimed at the retirement of the desert. Some chose the care of the sick, others devote themselves to intercession for the afflicted and the oppressed, or give themselves up to teaching or almsgiving to the poor. Wherefore, it is good and profitable for each one to endeavor with all his might 
and main to attain perfection in the work that has been begun, according to the line he has chosen as the grace which he has received. And while he praises and admires the virtues of others, not to swerve from his own line, which he has once for all chosen. For those who are not yet settled in the line which they have taken up are often, when they hear some praise for different pursuits and virtues, so stirred up by the praise of them that they try forthwith to imitate their methods. It is an impossibility for one and the same man to excel at once in all the good deeds enumerated above. In many ways men advance towards God, and so each man should complete that one which he has once fixed upon, never changing the course or of his purpose, so that he may be perfect in whatever line of life his may be. Endeavor, with all eagerness to gain in the first place a thorough grasp of practical, that is, ethical discipline, for without this, theoretic contemplative purity cannot be obtained. End quote. As used in this passage, the actual life is quite different from the active life of St. Gregory and later writers, for it includes as one of its form the life of hermits. Any form of Christian life may afford the exercising ground for the practice of virtue that is required for Cassian's actual life. One form is the cenobotic life, and this is the form chosen by St. Benedict for his monks. Persevering in God's teaching until death in the monastery, we may by patience share in the sufferings of Christ. Cassian's teaching on the spiritual life is further illustrated in the first conference. Quote, the end of our profession indeed is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, but the immediate aim or goal is purity of heart, without which no one can gain that end. Fixing our gaze then steady on this goal, as if on a definite mark, let us direct our course as straight towards it as possible. Whatever can help to guide us to this object, purity of heart, we must follow with all our might, but whatever hinders us from it, we must shun as a dangerous and hurtful thing. 4. For this we do and endure all things. For this we make light of our kinsfolk, our country, honors, riches, the delights of this world, and all kinds of pleasures, namely, in order that we may retain a lasting purity of heart. And so, when this object is set before us, we shall always direct our actions and thoughts straight towards the attainment of it. And if it be not constantly fixed before our eyes, our, all our toils will be vain and useless and endured to no purpose. Everything should be done and sought after by us for the sake of this. For this we must seek, for solitude. For this we know that we ought to be submit to fastings, vigils, toils, bodily nakedness, reading, and all other virtues, that through them we may be enabled to prepare our heart and to keep it unharmed by all evil passions, and resting on these steps to mount to the perfection of charity. Those things which are of secondary importance, such as fastings, vigils, withdrawal from the world, meditation on scripture, we ought to practice with a view to our main object, purity of heart. Fastings, vigils, meditation on the scriptures, self-denial, and the abnegation of all possessions are not perfection, but aids to perfection, because the end of that science does not lie in these, but by means of these we arrive at the end. end quote. The following summary of the way up to perfection may also be cited. The beginning of salvation and of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. From the fear of the Lord arises salutary compunction. From compunction of heart springs renunciation, 
i.e., nakedness in contempt of all possessions. From nakedness is begotten humility. From humility, the mortification of desires. Through mortification of desires, all faults are expurtated and decay. By the driving out of faults, virtue shoot up and increase. By the budding of virtues, purity of heart is gained. By purity of heart, the perfection of the apostolic love is acquired. Institutes chapter 4 verse 43. With this background to St. Benedict's mind, we may come to his own teaching on interior asceticism and the spiritual life. He places asceticism primarily in the renunciation of self-will, and on this he is insistent, as uncompromising as in matters of corporal austerity he is indulgent. At the very outset, he says to those who would come to the monastic life under his guidance that he addresses such as renounce their own wills. And in the course of the rule, the same idea is insisted on again and again. We are forbidden to do our own will. We must abandon it. We must hate it. We must not through love of our own will take pleasure in carrying out our own desires. No one in the monastery is to follow the will of his own heart, and it is not lawful for monks to have either their bodies or their wills as their own disposal. Finally, St. Benedict's very description of the cenobotical life is as follows. They do not live by their own free will, or obey their own desires and pleasures, but walk by another's judgment and command, and living in monasteries, desire that an abbot be over them. This renunciation of self-will translates itself into action into the three recognized vows of religion. It will express itself ready obedience to another's will, and detachment and poverty, impurity of heart and chastity. Thus, it is the very root of self-discipline and the practice of virtue or asceticism in its highest acceptance, and by thus singling it out as the thing that above all matters, St. Benedict showed himself as the great religious genius he was. It is the denying oneself, and, as St. Gregory says, quote, it is less a thing to renounce what one has, but it is an exceeding great thing to renounce what one is. It is to be noticed that he does not say that we are to mortify, to kill our own will, so as to become merely indifferent. This idea is often inculcated by the Egyptian monks and by later religious legislators. It is remarkable that though the words mortificare and mortificatio are common in Cassian, they are nowhere used by St. Benedict. He takes for granted that self-will is always alive in us, as, of course, it is, and so the most he tells us is to hate it. Could it be once for all destroyed, we should be deprived of the principal means of ascetical discipline. And it is a means that can constantly be used at every moment in things small and great, at every call of duty, when up against any rule, in any trouble, trial, temptation, in all our dealings with others, everywhere self comes in, everywhere is their self-will to be combated and conquered." It is the overcoming of self, the elimination of selfishness. It is, in short, that self-denial that is the root of the spiritual life. If anyone wish to come after me, let him deny himself. The Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 26, verse 24. And St. Benedict relied on this all-embracing spiritual mortification to effect in his monks that purifying of spirit that is the object of asceticism. When we look at the positive side of asceticism, Cassian's second part of the actual life, the training in virtue, 
we find that St. Benedict's formal teaching on the spiritual life is contained in The Instruments of Good Works and On Humility. We refer once for all to Abbot Delate's excellent and practical commentary on these two chapters, where their teaching is clearly and solidly brought out. Only certain aspects will be noted here. The instruments are 75 spiritual and moral precepts of miscellaneous character. They include the Ten Commandments and the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, and of the others, some are derived from Scripture and a few from other sources, but most have not been traced to any source. The instruments afford a wide and varied field of ascetical training, and St. Benedict gives them to his monks as the instruments or tools of the spiritual art, which are to be used incessantly, day and night, in the workshop of the monastery. And so the declaration of the English congregation direct this chapter often to be read and meditated upon, so that the precepts inculcated in it may always be for us the norm of our life. It is worthy of note that in St. Benedict's instruments there is nothing monastic or religious in the technical sense. They are all mere Christianity, elementary morality, fundamental religion. But any formal presentation by St. Benedict of a theory of the spiritual life must be sought in the greater chapter on humility, which has become a classic in ascetical literature. There is no question of giving any set commentary here, but only the barest indication of the doctrine. Abbot Delate's commentary may again be referred to, and also the masterly chapter on humility in Father Baker's Sancta Sophia, which seems to bring out the deepest meaning of St. Benedict's teaching, though humility is the word used throughout by St. Benedict. At the beginning, it is equated with discipline, which shows that under the term humility is included all that is meant by self-discipline or asceticism. As is well known, St. Benedict marks 12 degrees of humility, The fourth to eleventh are in large measure suggested by Cassian, but the first three and the last are St. Benedict's own. The first degree embraces the most fundamental truths of religion, which must pervade our minds at all times and be the groundwork of the spiritual life in us, the fear of God and mindfulness of his commandments, the sense that we are always in God's presence, and that all our thoughts and actions lie open to his sight, and the realization that he is at all times present with us. St. Thomas sums up this degree as reverence to God and declares that it is the root of humility. Humility, indeed, fundamentally is the realization of the truth as regards God, ourselves, and our relation to Him, and the acting on such realization. The next two degrees are concerned with renunciation of self-will and obedience, that we love not our own wills and delight not in fulfilling our own desires, and that for God's love we subject ourselves with all obedience to our superior, and then follow four degrees of extreme difficulty that takes us to the heights of self-conquest, that if in obedience things hard and distasteful, or even what injures soever, are laid upon us, our conscience do silently embrace them, and enduring them do neither grow weary nor fall away, that the monk hide not from his abbot in humble confession his evil thoughts and secret actions, i.e., not as a matter of sacramental confession, that the monk be contented with the meanest and the worst of everything, and whatever be enjoined him, judge himself a bad and worthless workman, that not only with his tongue does he pronounce himself, but also in the inmost feeling of his heart, believe himself lower and viler than all others. This last might seem impossible, 
were it not that in such cases as St. Teresa's and others, we have example of the holiest souls penetrated by an absolute and sincere conviction that they were the most unworthy and abject of creatures. The last five degrees are concerned with the effects of humility on conduct and demeanor. It will be seen that St. Benedict's conception of humility is much wider and deeper than the usual connotation of the word being the equivalent, as he makes it, of discipline, or training in the spiritual life, so that here we have his full doctrine of asceticism, the exercises he relied on for their formation and growth of his monks in holiness. It is nothing short of renunciation in a heroic degree. Yet St. Benedict is not framing any mere theoretical or academic scheme of virtue. He intends his monks to practice all these degrees of humility, for he says, if we wish, and he manifestly takes for granted that we do, to attain, not merely to humility, not merely to a high kind of humility, but to the summit of the highest humility, then must these rungs of the ladder be mounted. And at the end he declares, when all these degrees of humility have been climbed, the monk will straightway come to that perfect love of God which casteth out fear. The Benedictine monk must therefore not look on the difficult degrees as heights out of reach and mere ideals not intended for him. On the contrary, he is required to work seriously all his life as the acquirement of all the degrees of humility, even the highest and hardest. And he has St. Benedict's assurance, an assurance amply vouched for by history, that this spiritual asceticism will do for him as much as the corporal austerities of the older and also of newer monasticism, and will bring him surely to that love of God is the one ultimate object of the monastic life. It will have been noticed that the renunciation St. Benedict calls for always comes back, one way or another, to the renunciation of the will. It is always one's own will that has to be renounced. Nothing is said of renunciation of the affections, and yet this principle of the mortification of the affections under the name of detachment plays a prominent role in modern schools of asceticism and spirituality, and especially in the case of those devoted to the religious life. But such teaching has found its place in asceticism from the beginning, and conspicuously among the monks of Egypt. Probably the great apostle of detachment is the Carmelite mystic St. John of the Cross, the friend of St. Teresa, who, in the ascent of Mount Carmel, pursues the matter with scientific method and unrelenting logic through each faculty of the mind, each power of the soul, urging that for the spiritual man, no joy, no pleasure in anything, whether natural or spiritual, is admissible, there being nothing in which a man may rejoice except in serving God." Such sentences as the following abound, quote, The spiritual Christian ought to suppress all joy in created things because it is offensive in the sight of God. And he shrinks from no deductions. It is vanity for wife and husband to rejoice in marriage or to desire children, for they know not if they shall be servants of God. End quote. Probably no other Christian teacher has pushed the doctrine of detachment to a limit so extreme but others do teach a similar theory. For instance, Father Augustine Baker, though in the matter of bodily mortification most moderate, in the matter of affections, propounds a view of detachment that is a hard saying. The duty of a Christian, much more of a soul that aspires to perfection, is to love nothing at all but God, or in order to him, that is, as a means and instrument to beget and increase his divine love in our souls. 
All it is in two creatures by affection, whether such affection be great or small, is accordingly sinful, more or less, so that, if being deprived of any one thing or persons whatsoever, or being pained by anything, we find a trouble and sorrow in our minds for the loss of suffering of the thing itself, such trouble, in what degree soever, argues that our affection was sinful. Not only because the affection was excessive, but because it was an affection, the object whereof was not God. He explains indeed that he means an affection seated in the superior soul or rational will, not one confined to the sensitive nature, and sums up, to the superior will all things but God must be indifferent as in and for themselves, and only to be loved as they are serviceable to the spirit. Most modern writers would tone down such doctrine and recognize the lawfulness and goodness of the primary natural affections, but in matters of friendship an extreme rigor prevails, especially in the various forms of religious life, so that what is demanded is not so much the regulation and sanctification of the affections as their suppression. Precepts and examples of an extreme detachment are frequent among Egyptian monks, especially in regards to the family relationships and affections. And here it is possible to produce another antithesis, like those of the preceding chapter, illustrating the difference between St. Benedict's ideas and those prevalent in Egypt. Palladius relates of Abbot Prior of Nitria that on leaving his father's house as a young man in order to become a monk, he made a vow never again to see any of his family. And after fifty years, his old sister became possessed with a longing to see him, and begged the bishop to use his influence to make him come out of the desert and visit her. So Pyre went to her house, and standing outside, shut his eyes and called to her that he was there, and bade her come out and look at him. And she could not persuade him to enter the house, but praying on the threshold, which cl- with closed eyes, he departed again to the desert." What a contrast is this to St. Benedict's treatment of his sister Scholastica. Every year she came to a house near, the monastery, and they used to spend the day together till nightfall, and on her death Benedict had her body brought and laid in the grave prepared for himself, so that, as their minds were always one in God, no, their bodies were not separated in the grave. When we examine the rule, we find no exhortation to renunciation of the affections among either the instruments of good works or the degrees of humility. St. Benedict warns the abbot must not love one more than another, except him whom he finds better in good actions and obedience. He is to love his monks, and to try to win their affections, and the monks in turn should love their abbot with sincere and humble love. The elder monks are to love the younger, and the younger to obey the elder with all charity, and all are to cherish fraternal charity with love chastely. There is no ground for supposing that in these passages the words deligare amare do not bear their real meaning of love. On the contrary, they suggest that the great natural family relations and affections were intended by St. Benedict to hold sway in his spiritual family. The love of father for sons sway in his spiritual family. The love of father for sons and son for father and brothers for one another after the example of the mutual love of Benedict and Scholastica. There is no sure interpretation of the spirit of a religious rule than the practice of the saints who lived under it. St. Bernard's theory of natural affection and detachment stands out clear in the lament on the death of his own brother, Gerard, a monk with him at Clairvaux. Quote St. Bernard, My very bowels are torn away, and it is said to me, Do not feel any pain.
but I do feel pain, and that in spite of myself. I have not the insensibility of a stone, nor is my flesh of bronze. I have feeling assuredly, and sharp pain, and my trouble is ever in my sight. I have confessed my great affliction, and denied it not. Someone has called this carnal. I do not deny that it is human, just as I do not deny that I am a man. If that does not suffice, then I shall not deny that it is carnal. Nevertheless, I do not desire to oppose at all the decrees of the Holy One. It is reasonable to declare that I call in question the sentence because I feel the penalty keenly. To feel is human, but to repine would be impious. It is human, I repeat, and unavoidable that we should not be indifferent to those who are our friends, that we should enjoy their presence and lament it being taken from us. Social intercourse, particularly among friends, will not be tedious. The reluctance to separate, and the pain which is felt by each when separated, shows plainly the effect that their mutual affection has had upon those who live together. St. Bernard clearly does not come up to the standard of detachment required by St. John of the Cross and Father Baker, and the above, be it noted, was spoken to his monks. In the introduction to The Monks of the Lest, Montalembert speaks on the subject of friendship in the cloister. He brings forward not only from St. Bernard, but from St. Anselm and many other great figures in Benedictine history, passages, some of a southern warmth of expression, which show how real, how devoted, how truly human were the affections they did not hesitate to entertain and give scope to. Yet St. Bernard and St. Anselm were saints, and stound out as strong men in an age when men were strong. This shows that the kind of detachment called for by St. John of the Cross and many modern spiritual writers is at any rate not necessary for sanctity. At most, it is only one kind of holiness. There is another to be obtained without it, which lies not in the suppression, but in the due regulation and sanctification of affections. And the example of the great Benedictine saints, including St. Benedict himself, the indications of the rule and the analogies of St. Benedict's attitude to bodily austerities, which is one of temperance, not total abstinence, all lead to the conclusion that the latter is the authentic Benedictine idea of detachment. Both views can find support in the Gospels. There are utterances of our Lord that seem to call for detachment even the most rigorous. On the other hand, we are allowed to see that he had his human friendships and gave scope to his human affections, and the appeal to the example of our Lord brings us to the final touchstone of the spiritual life, which in all its forms must be for Christians, a following of Christ. This St. Benedict knew well, and so his rule begins with Christ, ever dwells on Christ, and ends with him. The aspirant to the monastic life is addressed as one going to serve as a soldier of Christ. The monk it is by faith to see Christ in all, in the abbot, in the guests, in the poor, in the sick. In self-denial he follows Christ. In obedience he imitates him. By patience he shares his sufferings. By love of him will he come to perfect charity. He is to place nothing before the love of Christ, nor deem anything dearer to him than Christ. And finally, the last words of the rule proper, for the final chapter is an appendix, are that he is to prefer nothing whatsoever to Christ. And this is the sum of St. Benedict's teaching on the spiritual life. 
This has been a production of Alleluia Audiobooks. For more free Catholic audiobooks, please visit us at alleluiaaudiobooks.com. If you would like to make a copy of this CD to give to your friends or family, please feel free to do so, but we do ask that you do not alter the original audio. Thank you, and God bless. St. Benedict, pray for us.